Today we turn our sights in a new direction. We're beginning a brand new series today through the Gospel of John. I'm really, really excited about this, and I hope you are too. Um, but here, here's the deal. All we're going to do today, all we're going to do is we're going to prepare our hearts and our minds for what's to come. We're not even going to dive into chapter 1, verse 1 yet today. We'll do that next week. What we're going to do today is we're going to warm up. we got a few guys uh, down in Morgan Hill today running a marathon. Clyde, where you were down there this morning, weren't you? For FCA? Last, last two days. For FCA. Uh, John and Danny are down there uh, and uh, running a marathon. Okay? So these guys are smart. Uh, Clyde, before you run a race, you would never go out there and just start running, right? You, you'd get out there and you'd stretch and you'd warm up those muscles. John and Danny started before they ran out. Even, even their first couple steps at 7.30 this morning, they got out there and they stretched and they warmed up their muscles. That's what we're doing today. We're going we're gonna to stretch. We've got a journey ahead of us. And before we take even a single step, we need to warm up. So here's how we're going to do that. We're going to get some context and lay some foundation for what's to come. I have been reading the Gospel of John over and over in its entirety, just bathing in this book. And every time I, I, I read it, I'm, I'm kind of, my eyes are being opened to something new. But you know, the first time I read it, I saw some, the first time I read it a few weeks ago in anticipation for the, this series, I saw some new themes emerge that I had never seen in the past. And, and they, they're so prevalent. They, the first time I read through it and I got the idea of why John wrote this book, then when I went back and I reread it a second time, my eyes, it was like I read everything afresh for the first time. I had a brand new perspective. It's like the movie Sixth Sense. We've talked about this here before. The Sixth Sense, right? You watch the movie, it's interesting. It's vaguely, you know, it's mildly entertaining. And then you get to the end, and Bruce Willis is what? He's dead, right? I didn't want to be going to spoil it. You're right. He's dead, right? He's dead. And so then you're like, what? He's been dead this, you know, most of the movie. And so then when you go back and you watch the movie a second time, you're watching every scene with a completely different perspective. That has transformed for you. And so what I'd like to do today is help you give a little bit of that. Each and every scene in John's biography of Jesus in the months to come, I want you to see what's behind it all. And that's our, that's our goal for today. So what we're going to do to do that is answer three questions. Number one, we're going to ask who wrote the book, who wrote it, why did he write it, and why is it worth studying today? Very simple questions. Who wrote it, why did he write it, and why is it important for us to study today? To do this properly in a way that made sense to me as I was preparing this, uh, we're going to work backwards. Okay, We're going to answer the third question first and just go backwards. So we ask first, why are we going to study the book? Why is it important? And here's the answer. Please listen here. The primary reason we have decided to study the book of John is because it is the most comprehensive and penetrating answer to the central question of history. And the question is, who is Jesus? The primary reason we've decided to study this book is because it's the most comprehensive and penetrating answer to the central question of history. And the central question of history is, who is Jesus? If you ask a room full of educated people, um, to, I'm not going to ask this room because we're not all educated people, right? Um, <laughs> if you ask a room full of educated people to make a list of a handful of, of the most influential people in all of history, I guarantee you virtually every single one of those people would include Jesus on that list. Um, let me actually read to you a couple of comments from some notable historians. This first one I'm going to read to is from a non-Christian, actually. This guy's name is William Lecky. He's a 19th century historian and a skeptic. He's a non-believer. This is what he wrote. He said, The character of Jesus has not only been 
the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life have done, has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Three, you said? three short years of public ministry has done more to transform society as we know it all, all over the world than all philosophers before or since. Philip Schaeff, another historian, again, that was from a non-Christian. Philip Schaeff, another historian, wrote this. He said, This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without sciences and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke words, such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Okay, but listen, we don't just study Jesus because he was influential. There's a lot of influential people in our world. Buddha is influential. Muhammad was influential. Karl Marx was influential. But what set Jesus apart from these other men and women of influence? Jesus is the only one of these guys who came on the scene claiming to be God. He showed up and not only exerted a ton of influence, but he came in saying, I am God incarnate. I am the creator of the universe. All these other influential men and women came in saying, okay, here's some, here's some new teaching I'm presenting to you. This is how you live life. This is how you find salvation. Here is the way to heaven. But Jesus showed up saying, I am salvation. I am the way to heaven. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You want to find salvation? You want to get to the Father? You want to have peace? You don't need a list of rules. You need me. Every other person throughout history who has claimed to be divine, who has claimed to be God, has eventually been dismissed as a crackpot. So how can, think about this for a second, how could one of the most influential people in all of history, this is undisputed, how could one of the most influential people in all of history make claims like that about to be God? How can he make claims like that and get away with it and maintain his influence? This is, I told you, there were, there were themes that kept popping out in John's gospel as I was reading them. And this is what it was. All throughout John's gospel, it is Jesus is making certain that people understand what he is claiming to be. It's in every way, shape, and form, no holds barred, he's saying, I am God. You're going to hear Jesus say in the book of John, I am the resurrection, I am the life, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, I am the living water, I am the light of the world. Remember when Moses was standing in front of the burning bush in Exodus and God is speaking from the burning bush, and he's telling Moses, he says, okay, you've just given him the commission to go out and deliver my people from Egypt. And then Moses says to God, and he says, well, what if they ask me your name? What if they ask me, you know, who you are? Because, again, Israel didn't have all that much interaction at that point with God. And said, what, what, what's your name? What should I tell them? What does God say? I am that I am. I am that I am. Fast forward now to John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What do the Pharisees do? They reach down and they, start, they pick up stones so they could kill him. Why would they want to kill him? Because he just said, very clearly, very definitively, I am 
God. I am that I am created, uncaused, self-existent being. That's what that name means. I am that I am. It's uncaused, self-existent being. Jesus is saying here very clearly, I am beginningless. I am the source of all other things in existence. He's telling the Pharisees, I created you. Jesus takes that divine name upon himself. And by the way, Jewish tradition was this. That's kind of an interesting statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In the Jewish tradition, what would happen was that when a rabbi would make a statement, he would, uh, all the other people in, in, you know, listening, all the other educated rabbis within, you know, who are listening, they would kind of weigh the statement. And if they agreed, they would say, truly. Or verily, it was like saying "Amen." They were approving it. They were they were validating the statement. It's like what again? It's it's saying "Amen." And so you remember in that culture, Jesus said, "Truly, truly, I say to you." Remember when you when you double a statement in that culture, it exponentially increases this, the significance of what is being stated. So if a father were to say, "Son, son," that means it's just this tremendous amount of passion and love that he has for his child. That's what he's that's what he's communicating. So I want you to see here what Jesus is saying when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, amen and amen. This is 100% valid. It is so. And notice that Jesus says it. He doesn't wait for others. And he says it up front. He doesn't like say something and then wait to see, well, what do you guys think? You know, what are your thoughts on that? You, do you approve of me? Do you, do, you, do you authorize my statement? No, Jesus says, truly, truly. He says it up front. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees wanted to kill him for making those statements. Because Jesus was saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have to do something about that. 2,000 years later, as we sit in here today talking about this, we, we have a responsibility. If we're, if we're going to be credible, if, we, if we're going to sleep at night, you have to do something with those claims. C.S. Lewis famously said that Jesus making these claims either makes him a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And those are the only three options that are, that are reasonable to make. Either Jesus knew that he was not God as he was claiming this and he was lying through his teeth. And then he should be dismissed as an immoral crook. Or he actually did truly think that he was God. And if that's the case, and that only leaves us with two options. Number one, he's crazy and he should be dismissed as such. As a crazy man who thinks he's God. Or he's telling the truth. The bottom line is, it's not okay for us just to treat Jesus as an interesting guy who had some interesting things to say that we can keep at arm's length, that we can kind of pick and choose what we like and what we don't like, and so on. If you believe, if you come to grips with the, the fact you believe that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic, then stop showing up to church. Sleep in on Sunday mornings. Take your family out to breakfast. Start being consistent with your life. Start being consistent. But if he is Lord... If you come to grips with the fact that he is who he says he is, then there's no more room for playing games. Again, picking and choosing what you want to follow, what you want to believe. If he is God, there is no room for half-hearted devotion. Jesus is saying explicitly in the Gospel of John, crown me or kill me. But there's nothing in between. It's crown me or kill me. See me as the all-powerful creator God or else throw me out, but I'm nothing in the middle. Because look at his, look at his claims. He can't just be another nice guy. He's not just a good teacher or a good example. He's saying, I'm God. I'm God. So you either have to receive me as the ultimate power and supreme authority in your life, or you throw me out altogether. 
There's no room for anything else. We're studying the Gospel of John because no other piece of work ever written more clearly and more definitively answers the question, who is Jesus? There's no, more, there's no more important question on the face of the planet than that. And there's no better book for us to study to get the answer than John's gospel. And that was actually John's goal in writing this biography. And that answers our second question of the day. Our second question was, why is the book written? Why was the book written? John leaves no room for speculation. Look at John chapter 20. This is right at the end of his book. John gives the purpose for writing this book. He says, now... Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There it is. That's the purpose. That's why he wrote the book of John, the Gospel of John. This biography was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, you can have life in his name. And look. I know most of the people in this room. And I know that many of you have already made the decision to follow Jesus. Praise God for that. You've already seen Jesus to be who he is and that he's God. And so you might be thinking today as I'm saying this, really, we're, we're going to be at this for months and months now. Um, and the whole purpose is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that we might find life in his name. But don't you, you feel if you know me, like I've, I've already found that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I've already found life in his name. So... You know, do I sit this one out? Do I get a free pass? Do I help out in the kids' ministry for the next few months? Um, if you, the answer to that last one is yes, you do help out in the children's ministry. <laughs> if you get to the heart of the original Greek uh, uh, that, that John wrote down here, there's a little bit more to it than meets the eye. He says, again, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But his, this phrase here goes beyond an evangelistic bent. This could literally be read, this statement that he made. It could literally be read like this. These are written so that you may go on believing. That's actually how it should be written. These are written so that you may go on believing that Jesus is God and then find life in his name. In other words, this book is given to us, Christians, as a gift to help us persevere and to grow in our walk with the Lord. It's to help us go on believing that Jesus is the Lord. And that is so important. Jesus said in John 15, he said, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And in John 8, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So when Jesus said, excuse me, when John says, These are written so that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he means two things. He was saying, I, these things are written down to awaken faith, to sustain faith in belief. This book is written for both Christians and non-Christians. And regardless of where you stand today with the Lord, I promise you, there will be a benefit to you being here each and every week that we study through this. Um, but it's, like I said, it's not just written for, not, for, for Christians about sustaining faith. There is the element that it, of, of awakening faith. As we dive into this book this next week, Please hear me. Would you please consider inviting a friend? Would you please prayerfully consider inviting a neighbor or a coworker or a family or a friend? Um, these empty chairs, they, they bother me. Okay, they do. And, and the fact, I mean, there's, there's all the space here. Okay, this, that, that bothers me. It does, 
I hope you guys know me well enough by now to know that I, I don't want to see more people just come into this church just, just so we can all give ourselves a big pat on the back and say, way to go, guys, we grew a church, right? What does, what does bother me? What does concern me? Okay, I'm not concerned about growing a church for that sake. What I'm concerned about is the guy who sits next to me at Starbucks and my neighbors and my friends, and my, family, my family members, my family members who have yet to understand and embrace what Jesus has done for them. And if the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, if the Bible is true, that means that they are still dead in their trespasses and that they are separated from God. That's not okay. It's not okay. I'm the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm the, the voice of Jesus. And I've been commissioned to go and to make disciples. And it's not just because I'm on staff here at this church. If you are a Christian today, you have been given the commission by Jesus Christ himself. Go make disciples. How's that going? Can I ask? For some of you, I, I can look around. I can say for some of you, you guys are just pouring in the people. And you are looking for every opportunity to share the love of Christ and to, in both word and deed. And for others of us in here, if we're honest, if we're honest, do something, do anything, I'm begging you, for the sake of your family and your friends. Invite them in. Go. You don't have to bring them even here. Go share the gospel in your work. Go share the gospel in your kid's soccer team. Go in, in word and in deed. Bring the gospel. It's, I don't, I don't have time. <laughs> I visited a couple of other local churches last week. That's why I wasn't here, actually. And uh, I really, really enjoyed my time. Just going and kind of sitting in the back anonymously. And I know the, the, the pastors of the church I went to visit. It was just really a sweet time to go and just see what some of the other local churches are up to. And I was really, really blessed by my time. We have some great local churches in this area. Almost every time when a new person comes in our church and they're kind of church shopping, and a couple of you guys can attest to this, we'll say, hey, and if Twin Oaks doesn't work out for you, I've got a, a couple of great other churches I'd love to recommend to you. If Twin Oaks doesn't happen to be the place, because there's some great local church bodies in this area. We're really blessed to have the partnerships that we do with those other, other churches. But I have to tell you that on some level, I walked away a little bit discouraged last Sunday. You know why? Because the two churches that I, that, I, uh, that I visited were basically the same size we are. There were empty seats all over the place. And that, that breaks my heart. Because if the stats are true, then there are 900,000 plus people within a 20 to 30 minute drive from this place here that are separated from God. 900,000 within a half hour radius from here. This next week, guys, we're beginning to study a book written for the express purpose of declaring the identity, the mission, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that those who hear it might believe and find life. We're going to study a book together as a church that has been promised by God to transform hearts and minds. Paul tells us that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. I'm begging you, invite somebody next week. And I give you, if, if you do this, I give you my word. I give you my word that I will wrestle and I will pray and I'll do everything in my power. Okay? And everything in the God, God willing in His power to, to come here on, on, on Sunday mornings and present to you faithfully and clearly the person and the work of Jesus. So help me, God. Please pray for me in that as well. The last question we ask is this Who wrote the book? And that's kind of an easy one, right? That's, that's a no brainer. This is the gospel according to John. Very good. You're paying attention. The book is written by John, but who? John who? John Olson? Okay. Sarah just takes it. No, no. Um, no. John Bunyan, John Smith, 
John who? That's an important question for us to ask. Okay? I, I quoted to you guys earlier a, a, a comment from William Leckie. And I didn't, just, I didn't just say, now I want to share a quote with you from William and then read it. Because frankly, that shouldn't mean all that much to you. Because you're like, well, Prince William? William Wallace? Robin Williams? Okay? William Leckie, the historian from the 19th century, and I told you that he was a skeptic, a non-Christian. Right? So I said all this. I gave you his context he was speaking from so you could better understand and appreciate his insights. We've got to do the same thing with John. How do we know we can trust the guy? Who's to say that what he has to say is all that important? I was talking with a guy a few weeks ago uh, at Starbucks, and uh, the, this man was an agnostic, um, which is a fancy word for meaning he kind of the verdict's out in his mind of whether or not there's a God. And he, uh, he saw me reading my Bible, and so he started to get in this long conversation, and he started to kind of question all of my thoughts about Jesus and started ridiculing the authors of the books of the Bible, including John. And instead, he, he started giving me all kinds of alternatives to the life of Jesus. He said, well, don't you know that Jesus never really claimed to be God? He said, don't you know that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene? And he actually had kids. He never really died on the cross. He lived to a ripe old age and so on. And so and throughout this conversation, I kept asking him over and over. I said, where, where are you getting your information? Like, I, as I kept saying, it's from what authority are you basing your comments? Like, what, what, what is your source? Please tell me your source. He gave me one of two answers all throughout those two hours that we were talking. He just kept one of two answers. He, first, he'd say, you know, something like, you know, you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. I'm like, where did you hear that? He said, well, just Google it. <laughs> that, that was his response. Google it. And I said, well, okay. All right. So I'm going to go to Google, and that's where I'm going to get my, okay. Here was the second answer. That, that he, he gave me. He said, that's common sense. Common sense. So I said, wait, who's com your common sense? Who's common sense? And I said, so I asked him, I said, you'd rather me take your ideas, your perspective on Jesus, rather than the eyewitness testimony of the men who were with him, who traveled with him, who ate with him, who talked with him, who saw firsthand the miracles and the crucifixion and the resurrection, who were tortured and who were killed for their statements. You'd rather me trust your word, though, your, your common sense. I said, no, I, and I said this respect, I said, no offense, man, but I, I'm going to stick with the authority of the scriptures, the authority of the eyewitness testimonies. But it's so important for us to know whether or not our sources are legitimate. So what about John? Don't take my word for it. What about John? What makes John an authority on the life and the ministry of Jesus? Let me finish out our time today by giving you a glimpse at John's life and his relationship with Jesus. I'm going to give you a little bit of background of his story. Well, we first meet John when he's out on the boat with his brother, James. And John and James had a couple of uh, business partners in their fishing company, two guys named Peter and Andrew. And uh, they're all out on the water fishing one day. And out of nowhere, this traveling teacher strolls uh, on by on the shore. And this teacher looks out on the boat and he calls out to them and he invites them. He says, he says drop what you're doing, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And amazingly, John does. He drops what he's doing and he follows him. Think now about what John is walking away from at this point. First, he's walking away from his livelihood. He's walking away from his source of income. We kind of, you know, fishermen this day, it's kind of like a kind of a blue-collar vocation. But in that day, having a fishing company was, was no joke. You, if, you, if you had a fishing company, that means you could own your own boats. You had enough money to own your own boats. You could buy your own nets. You, you had to have employees. Okay, so this is... He's got a decent business at this point. It was his, actually his father Zebedee's business. And John and James are taking their dad's business. 
but John drops everything and he walks away from a very secure financial future. Beyond that, from what we know, John was single. And so as he's leaving his job, he's probably leaving the opportunity of ever getting married. Because what father in their right mind would give their daughter away to a man who's unemployed, who can't afford a dowry, much less support a family? But John drops everything and follows a teacher, whom he learns is named Jesus. John follows Jesus for a while, and it doesn't take him long to realize that he made the right decision. Uh, it's it's kind of like Jesus' story about a man who's digging in a field, and as he's digging in this field, he comes across a treasure, which Jesus calls the pearl of great price. He comes across the treasure, and he buries it back in, and then he goes home, and he sells off everything he has, everything he owns. He sells it, and then he takes that money, and he goes and he buys that field so that he can have possession of that treasure. That's what John does. He gives up everything he has because he knows now that the relationship that he has with Jesus far surpasses every other relationship and every other possession that this world has to offer. John follows him. The more time goes by, the larger Jesus' following becomes. Lots of people start following Jesus. John's just one of the, one of the crowd. Until one day, Jesus goes up on a hillside and looks out among his followers. And he does what he must do. Because whenever a teacher got that popular, he had to pare down the class, didn't he? He would hand-select a few people that he would invest in. Jesus looked down and began to call out people who were going to be his select pupils. He called out 12 of them. We call them the 12 disciples. Put yourself in John's shoes for a minute. He's looking up at Jesus as Jesus has begun to make his selection. He's desperate to be selected. But John had no formal religious training. Okay, He was very young. Okay, probably Scholars think probably in his early 20s at the most. He had no real credentials that merited him being picked. But Jesus, as he's picking people that he would like to invest in and eat with and travel with and teach, he looks at John and he calls him by name and he says, You, you're going to be mine. You're going to be my student. From what we can tell, please hear me, what developed from here is one of the sweetest and closest relationships that Jesus has with anyone on the earth Commentator after commentator after commentator agreed. And you'll see it as you start getting into this and into the all four Gospels. It seems as if John turns out to be Jesus' best friend. It seems as if John turns out to be Jesus' best friend on the planet. But John's discipleship with Jesus starts a bit rough. Many of you guys are familiar with the story. Remember, uh, in the beginning, John goes to Jesus. If he and his brother James can rule with Jesus... Right? They want to be placed. Disciples said, give us a throne on your right and on your left. Okay? And Jesus and gently corrects him and uses that as an opportunity to teach disciples about what it means to, to lead through service and sacrifice. Or another story was when John uh, goes to Jesus and said, you know, um, Jesus isn't welcomed into a village in the way that, that John thinks he should have been welcomed. And so then John goes to Jesus and says, you know, he runs, Jesus, you want me to just call fire down from heaven and consume that village for you. That's actually what he says. Would you like me to, Jesus, do you want me to just go call down fire from heaven and I'll burn that village up for you? You can imagine Jesus' response. as he, No, John, thank you. It's all right. No, he turns, he, he turns and he rebukes him, right? But that's the kind of guy that John was. He was passionate, he was bold, and at times just a wee bit overzealous. Jesus actually gave John a nickname. He calls John and his brother Boanerges. It means sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. I don't know if Jesus was laughing when he said it, if he was teasing him, or if he just saw this tremendous amount of courage that John had in his life. I don't know, but imagine being John. You were the young, 
close friend of the incarnate word of God and you love him and you're excited to be with him and he looks at you and maybe with a smile he gives you a nickname. He calls you son of thunder. Maybe think about that. How cool would that be? Jesus giving you a nickname. That was John. Out of those 12 disciples, Jesus selected three of the men that he would invest in the most. That was Peter, James, and it was John. These three had access to Jesus in a way that no one else in the history of the world ever have. And I don't have time to go into details on each of the events here, but let me just give you a few examples of sort of the unique relationship and experiences that, that John and a couple of those, these other guys had. When Jesus was transfigured on the mount, right into his full glory, he limited his glory in a sense when he was on the earth, but on, on the mount he, he, he kind of unleashed his glory. Who got to see him? John. Who was the one that Jesus entrusted with the details for setting up the Last Supper? Remember the painting, right, with all the disciples all sitting around Jesus? Who set the table? John. Who did Jesus choose to have sit next to him at that table for his last meal with his disciples? John. When Jesus told his disciples that one of them was about to betray him, and everybody wanted to know who it was, who was selected to go to Jesus and ask? John. It's, it's, I think it's so funny because Peter actually goes to John and says, John, you go ask him. Peter was like the lead, he was like the ringleader of the 12 disciples. But Peter actually goes to John and says, he might tell you if you ask him. <laughs> when Jesus went out to the garden of Gethsemane that night in despair, knowing that his time was close at hand, who did he bring to pray for him? John. When Jesus was arrested that night and brought into the high priest's home to be tried, who was in the high priest's courtyard watching from a distance? Peter. See if you're paying attention. Okay? We know that, that, was that Peter was the one that was there, right? Okay? But listen. Because we know that's where Peter denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus predicted. But who was there first who actually got Peter in the door? John was there first because he had a pre-existing relationship with the high priest. So John put in a good word for Peter at the door. So he actually got into the courtyard in the first place. Because of John's relationship with the high priest, John was the only apostle who was able to be there for the entirety of the trial. John sits there. Again, we believe he's the only apostle there during the, trial, during the entire trial and the crucifixion. You can just imagine how John feels as he sees this, this friend, his best friend and his God who has picked him, who has loved him, and who has taught him, and who has instructed him, who has cared for him and, and rebuked him and so on. You can just imagine how John is feeling as he sees Jesus accused by the Pharisees and mocked and spit on. John loved Jesus deeply. Jesus was his God and his best friend, and now he's watching him suffer beyond what we can comprehend. You can imagine the anger and the sorrow that John must have felt as he's sitting in that courtroom, as he watches Jesus get convicted, and not just convicted, but convicted to death, and not just any death, but death on the cross. You know the story. They stripped Jesus, they mocked him, they whipped his back. The Roman guards took them away and they had a handle with a leather with leather straps on it and they would throw it across the back of their prisoner. On the end of that, that leather strap would be shards of metal or pottery. And basically these shards would sink into the flesh and then the soldiers would rip off literally flesh and muscle off of his body. Over and over and over. And then to mock him, they took a crown of thorns with these thorns two to three inches deep and they pressed it into the head of Jesus. And they plucked out the, the, the beard off of his face and they spit on him. And they punched him. 
And then they took a big crossbar and they put it on his back, on, right on top of the mangled flesh of his back. And, and just to publicly humiliate him, they make him walk through the streets carrying his own cross, his own instrument of, of, of his execution. And John watched it all. You can imagine him weeping and sobbing as he's watching his best friend and his God suffer right in front of his eyes. The story goes on that Jesus is led outside of the city and he's hung on the cross that he had been carrying. They took nails that looked like railroad spikes and they, they drive him into the wrists of Jesus. and They put, drive him into his ankles and he's left there to die a slow and a painful death. You remember how they died when the crucifixion? It's, it, they actually suffocate. Don't you? you? actually suffocate because you're, you're drooped down and you can't get air into your lungs. And so you have to push up on the nail that's going through your ankle. You have to push up just to get some air into your lungs that will help you survive just a few moments longer. And it's for hours and hours, sometimes days. We're told that Jesus is mocked and he's spit on by the onlookers. But it's not only the antagonizers who were there. John was there. Again, from what we know, we think John was the only apostle there. John stood there weeping, standing next to Jesus' mother, Mary, probably comforting that poor old woman. What does Jesus do? As he's hanging on that cross and he sees John and he sees his mother, what does Jesus do? He gasps out to John. It was, it was just a little bit of breath in his lungs that he has. He gasps out to John, John, this is your mom now. Take care of her. And then he looks at Mary and he breathes again. He says, Mary, he probably calls him mother, mother, this is your son. Take care of him. And John is the man that he chooses to care for his mother. And from that day on, we're told that he brings her into his home, that he cares for her, and he loves her, and he serves her as if she were his own mother. And Jesus breathed his last. He was taken off the cross and he was put into a tomb. We're told that several, men, several women went to that tomb three days later with some spices. Well, what did they find? An empty tomb. They went back and they told the disciples. They ran back and they said, Jesus wasn't there. The linens that he was wrapped in, they were there, but he's not, but he wasn't there. He's alive. So the apostles run to the tomb. Who do you think made it to the tomb first? John. Later, the apostles are out fishing and they see a man out on the shore. Who is the first person to recognize Jesus for who he is in his, in his, in his resurrected body? John. Imagine the joy that John must have felt at that point. The scriptures say that Jesus went on to tell the disciples how the Old Testament was all pointing to him, to, to his life and to his death and to his resurrection. And the disciples started to put all the pieces together. What's going through John's mind? Because just days earlier, he thought that he was losing his best friend and his Savior that loved him so much and that he had loved with all of his heart. And now he's grips. He's finally coming to understand that the reason why Jesus endured all of that pain and all of that suffering was because Jesus loved John that much. John's sin had to be atoned for. Either Jesus died in his place and took his punishment, or John remained separated from God forever. But Jesus loved him too much. Jesus chose to die. John's eyes were open to the gospel. Jesus went on to show himself to hundreds and hundreds of others and eventually ascended into heaven. The Spirit of Christ was then poured out on the apostles, and those who sat under Jesus, the great teacher, were now, were now entrusted with the responsibility of being teachers themselves. So John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, stepped up to the challenge. He, he spread the good news and taught in the churches with passion and with zeal and with thunder. He lived up to his name. John saw Paul come to Christ, and he served alongside him. 
He, he served with Peter to untangle church and theological issues. He helped shepherd churches in Jerusalem and Ephesus. Years go by, and John's no longer this young, impetuous man anymore. He grew to be a feeble but wise and spirit-filled old man. And the Spirit inspired him to take the teaching that he'd been given firsthand from Jesus, and he writes this gospel. He says, What our ears have heard and what our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. That's what he said. What our ears have heard and what our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. John spoke with a tremendous authority because he was there. He was there. He was able to tell the people, I, I heard him. I saw him. I saw him feed the thousands of people with just a few loaves and, and a few fish. I saw him call Lazarus out of the grave. I saw the miracles. I saw him walk on water. I saw him die, and I saw him rise, and I saw him ascend into heaven. I heard the promises that he's coming back. John's brother James was the first apostle. Remember this other son of thunder was the first apostle to be arrested and martyred for his faith. And one by one, the other apostles were arrested and tortured and killed in an effort to get them to recant their claims about Jesus. But every single one of the apostles went to their death living in glad submission to Jesus. History tells us, church history tells us, they tried to kill John too. Um, they put him in a vat of boiling water or oil and tried to boil him alive. And for whatever reason, John wouldn't die. Um, I have my theories, but... The, the fact is, he had he, by that time he had he had written all of his contributions to the scriptures yet. There were still some writings to be done. John, God wasn't done with him yet. So they sent him off to the island of Patmos, where he lived in exile. It's off of modern day Turkey, island off of modern day Turkey. And there he was, John. There, there John was in chains in a barren place, all by himself. And we're told that on a Sunday morning, as he's sitting there alone in chains. He's, he's, he's in the spirit. He's praying. It's a, the, the, the scriptures say he's praying. Probably reminiscing about the times that he had of Jesus. Longing for the day of his own resurrection. When all of a sudden, guess who shows up? Jesus. Jesus gives him the vision of the entire book of Revelation. The last book of our Bible. Jesus tells John all about the ends of the end of the age, about judgment for sin, about the new heavens and the new earth, and what he would look like as king, seated on his throne with all the nations of the earth coming down to worship before him. John got to see all of that, and he wrote it down. John was eventually allowed off the island and went back to Ephesus, where he sat as an elder of the church there. Eusebius was one of the first church historians, and Eusebius writes down a really interesting story that I'd like to uh, share, if I could. Apparently, in the latter years of John's life, uh, John had led a certain young man to Christ and had begun to disciple him. Um, John had to take a trip at one point, so he had, to leave, he had to leave Ephesus. And so he didn't want to leave this young man without somebody to encourage him and to mentor him. And so he asked the bishop of the church, he said, while I'm gone, will you care for this young man? Would you disciple him? Would you encourage him and pray for him and watch out for him? So the bishop says, yeah. So John takes off on his trip. When John comes back from the trip, he goes to the bishop and he asks about the young man. And his friend, this bishop, just drops his head and says, I'm sorry, he's dead. And John says, what? What do you mean he's dead? And the bishop says, he's dead to God. He's fallen away. And uh, apparently what happened is this young man got caught up with some rough friends again. And he fell into a life of crime. And he was now actually leading a gang of thieves and robbers and was hiding up in the mountains. And this bishop said, you know, anybody who travels up to their hideout is ambushed along the way and is murdered. According to Eusebius, this church historian, John just falls to the ground, rips his garments in an expression of grief, and he says, get me off.
He said, get me a horse. And so John, this feeble little old man, gets on a horse and rides up this mountain. And eventually, just as Bishop had said, some men jump out of the road. They were ambushing. Some men jump out of the road, and they pull John off of his horse. And he says, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I came here to get caught. I need to speak to your leader. I need to talk to your leader. So the men comply, and they lead John up the mountain, and they take him to see this young leader. And as soon as the John walks in, and the leader, this young man, recognizes John to be John, this young armed man, armed, takes off and runs out of the room as fast as he can. And John, Eusebius tells us that John, the best that he can, just runs after him and follows him and follows him and follows him and won't let up. Eusebius says that John cries out, Why flee from me? I'm an old, unarmed young man. Don't you see there's still life for you? I would gladly suffer death for you as the Lord suffered death for me. I would give my own life in exchange for yours. Stop. Listen. Trust me. Eusebius says that hearing these words, the man stopped and he threw away, he hurled down his weapons. And trembling, he began to weep bitterly and he came down the mountain with John. So here's what's been going through my head all this week. As, I, as I'm reading through this story and I'm looking at the Gospels of John, you look at the beginning of John's discipleship with Jesus. And remember what you have. You've got a guy who is clamoring for position and power, a judgmental, hot-tempered zealot. How do you go from that to what I just read to you there. Remember, he was calling down fire. You don't, you don't respect Jesus? I'll call down fire. I'll kill you. That's what he said. I'll kill you. People, people, people who were doing miracles in the name of Jesus that didn't belong to the 12 disciples said, you're not allowed to do this. You're, you're not allowed to follow Jesus unless you're one of the inner circle. Okay? How do you go from that to, to, to John now falling down on his knees to a, to a young punk Murderer, robber, he's saying, I would give my life for you. If you would just come back to the Lord, if you could just experience the freedom and the forgiveness and new life with Christ, if you just walk in Christ, I would give up my very life to see that. How do you get that? What, where, how did that transformation come? And I'll tell you. I think it's wrapped up in how John describes himself in his gospel. Do you know that in the gospel of John, he never, he never refers to himself as John the Apostle? Isn't that interesting? He never calls himself John the Apostle. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. We're the beloved disciple. The disciple that Jesus loved. That utterly defined him. He said, I am loved by God. That's who I am. That's what I am. That's what I hang my hat on at the end of the day. That's how I fall asleep at night. That's what inspires me to get up in the morning. I'm loved by God. I don't need the approval of others. I don't care if other people judge me. I don't even judge myself. It's God who judges me, and the verdict is in. I am loved by God. He demonstrated on the cross. He's like, I saw it with my own eyes. I know how much he loved me. I watched him bleed. God loves me. John has the ability to paint a clearer and more definitive, more transformational, transformative picture of Jesus than any other person in the history of the world. I'm not sure if some of you have seen this in the past. In, in early Christian art, the apostles, if you look at some of the paintings or some like stained glass, sometimes you'll see this. But in early Christian art, the apostles are sometimes memorialized as animals. Um, and each apostle is depicted as a specific animal for a specific reason. John is portrayed as an eagle. Um, one of the theories on why that was the case is because the eagle is one of the few birds that is able to find the eagle can actually gaze head the beauty and the glory of the sun. This is what John was able to do. And through his writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
we can too. John, in a more unique and profound way than any other person in history, is going to be able to help us answer the most important question in the world, who is Jesus? And my prayer is that in the months to come, through the Holy Spirit-inspired writings of John, together we will stare straight into the matchless majesty of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just want to come to you and ask for your mercy. Lord, as we open your word next week, we start John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, I pray your favor, your mercy, your um, just a movement of your spirit, Lord, through your word uh, in the hearts and the minds of your people. Please, God, speak to us. Show us who you are in the same way that you showed yourself to John. God, you 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 loved him, and you, you just decided one day you were gonna sh- you were gonna show him your glory. And you took him up on that mountain, and you tr- you were transfigured, God, and, and he saw you in all of your glory. I'm asking God for the same thing for this church. Would you grant us the favor, Lord, that you might come here and just show off? Just show us your glory, Lord, through your word. And God, I pray that as we hear your word, that you would help us to respond in faith, that we would love you each and every single day more and more as as our eyes are continually being opened to your beauty and your sufficiency. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.